0: If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part and I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
1: Amen. Thank you for reading scripture for us this morning, Michelle. That passage is uh, commonly used at weddings, but I don't think anyone's getting married this morning. Um, But we are going to be talking about love, and this morning I would like to paint a picture for you. So just bear with me. A friend invites you over for dinner at their house. And so you you get ready. You, you, know, you, you put on some nice clothes and you head over there. And you enter into their house. And there in front of you, you see it. A sign with three words on it. Live, laugh, and love and you sigh a deep breath of relief. And now that you have been given permission to live, laugh, and love, you proceed to have a wonderful evening. This phrase, live, laugh, and love, has become very popular recently. And if you spent any amount of time in the home decor section of Target or TJ Maxx or Marshalls, you've probably seen a sign similar to this one. If you have one in your home, Don't take this personally, I'm not making fun of you. Uh, But a progressive insurance ad in 2020 posed the controversial question, maybe you remember these ads, do we really need a sign to live, laugh, and love? To which the answer was no. (laughs) This was a commercial about people becoming like their parents. And uh, this saying, live, laugh, and love, is actually a paraphrase of Bessie Anderson Stanley's 1904 poem titled Success, which reads, he achieved success who has lived well, laughed often, and loved much. But the presence of signs like this in our home and in our culture points to something significant, right? Living, Laughing, loving, those are all important values that we hold to, right? We are, those are good sentiments, and, and even placing those signs in our homes shows uh, what we believe about what it means to live a good life. A life well-lived contains laughter. It contains love. But the problem with these signs is that they aren't very specific. It's pretty generic, right? Live, laugh, and love. What does it mean? to live? What should make us laugh? And how do we define love? And so in today's passage, Paul is going to instruct the Thessalonians on how to love and how to live. He doesn't talk a lot about laughter. Maybe he'll talk about that at some point in the future. But if Paul were to hang a live, laugh, and love sign in his home, what exactly would he mean by those words? Let's pray together before we look at our passage of scripture. God, this morning we, we know that living, laughing, and loving, those are important aspects of uh, what we do, why we're here. And God, this morning as we continue uh, in this study of 1 Thessalonians, as we look at your word, uh, God, may you instruct us on how we should live and how we should love God, may we be open to changing certain aspects of our lives uh, so that we can align ourselves uh, more with how you have instructed us to do these things. May we be people and may we be a church uh, who live well and love well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we continue to move through this book, we looked at verses 1 through 8 last week, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. So, a bit of a shorter section for us this morning, uh, but today's passage is split up into two parts. You can think of these as two lessons to get from this sermon. The first section is love well in verses 9 through 10, and the second section, similar, Live well, in verses 11 through 12. Let me read verses 9 through 10 for us this morning. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, Brothers, to do this more and more. I'll stop reading there. So as we mentioned last week, we're in the second half of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul is really getting to the heart of his letter. Possibly the most important teaching that we can get from this book. And so he's moved from simply encouraging the Thessalonians to more of an instruction time. He's moving into specific ways uh, of how they should be living. Last week, we talked about purity. And as you can tell from this section this morning, we will now hear Paul's instructions about love. First, Paul says that no one needs to write to the Thessalonians about love because They have been taught by God to love one another. And this is a little ironic because technically Paul is writing to them about love, but uh, he's making a point here and what he says is significant. The Thessalonians haven't been taught by God, or they haven't been taught by men on how to love. They've been taught by God of how to love. God is the only one who can truly teach us how to love. It is only by looking at how God loves us that we can see how we should love others. And how did God love us? By creating us, by providing for us, and by sacrificing his son so that we can be with him forever. Those things, but also much more. God created love and God defines love, and as we know, God is love. And so I'll invite you this morning to take a second to think back over the course of your life. How have you seen or felt God's love for you? Through His grace, through His mercy, through how he's provided for you. As we look back over our lives, we should be able to clearly see God's love for us. And now I want you to take a second to think, how have you loved others? Have you shown them grace? Have you shown them mercy? Have you provided for other people. God teaches us how to love by loving us first. And then we love others by following in his example. Right, The way that God has loved us and the way that we love other people, we should see a clear connection between those two things. But so often, we like to define love for ourselves instead of letting God define it. So often we think of love as giving someone else what they want from us. But true love is maybe not giving someone what they want, but giving someone what they need. I desperately want to eat ice cream every meal of the day. (laughs) And if Natalie really loved me, then she would let me do that. Right? But because Natalie loves me, she won't let me do that. Because she knows it isn't good for me. right? For those of us who have kids in the room, we don't always give kids what they want. right? That might not be good for them. Give them what they need. And so to connect this this morning, the Jews in Jerusalem desperately wanted a king who would free them from Roman oppression And who would establish their nation as a global superpower. But because God loved them, he didn't give them what they wanted. He gave them a king who would free them from the oppression of sin. And who would establish a heavenly kingdom here on earth. See, God doesn't always give us what we want. But he does always give us what we need. And this is how we know that he loves us. This is how we should strive to love others. And Paul continues on in verse 10 by saying that the Thessalonians are doing this. And, uh, you know, this shouldn't really surprise us because Paul has said things like this about the Thessalonians before. But we can gather that the Thessalonians have done a good job of loving people in their church, but also loving people in their city And Paul goes on to say that their love has gone out to all of Macedonia. Just as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the love of the Thessalonians had gone out in Thessalonica, in Macedonia, and to the end of the earth. We don't get a lot of specifics here about how the Thessalonians loved others. It could have been through financial giving or through serving or through prayer or through fellowship with one another. Probably a combination of all of those things. And whatever it was that they were doing was making an impact. And I wonder, what would it look like for California church to be known in this way for our love? And I think we are known for our love, especially within our walls. What would it look like for us to love those outside of our walls? This is a theme that we've continued to talk about throughout this book. I actually looked up the the size of Macedonia. It's about the size of Pennsylvania. (laughs) And so if we could read this passage with California in mind, what would it look like for California church? to love those throughout Pennsylvania, right? That seems almost astronomical for us to wrap our minds around how a church could be known throughout such a large area by their love. But the Thessalonians accomplished this. And so, as I just said earlier, if loving people is giving them what they need and not what they want, then do we know the needs of those around us? Do we know the needs of our neighbors, the needs of local business owners, the needs of other local churches? And how can we work to meet those needs, to love them? And so, if I could give you a homework assignment for this week, you <laughs> didn't expect to get homework at church this morning. Find one need that is close to you, have one conversation with someone figure out what it is they need, and then report back. Let me know the need that you found. And let's talk about those opportunities that we have to love other people as a church. So I've shared some of, th- some of this uh, with you already. Um, some of you know that I'm into uh, vintage or retro media, uh, music, that kind of thing. And so I recently uh, set up a booth at a local antique store in Morgantown. And so if you're there, stop by. I'm just kidding. Uh, I've only been there a few times to set up or to cover the floor. Uh, But the one day I'm there, I'm reading a book for, for seminary, and a woman comes up to me. And she's working there too, and she asks me what I'm, what I'm reading, and we've talked a little bit before this, and I, I think to myself, wow, this conversation can go in a number of different, different directions. Uh, and so I tell her that I'm a pastor down the road, close by, and she hears this, and she just full on launches into her story about how she used to attend church but doesn't anymore and had experienced a lot of of hurt from the church and had been a part of a church that wasn't loving and what she needed was one someone to listen to her story but second someone to remind her that churches were supposed to be loving and that there are churches out there that are loving churches and She hasn't come yet. I wouldn't have shared this story this morning if she was sitting in the back. But I invited her to come and check out our church, and I hope that one day uh, she will come. And this is why it's it's so important for us to be a loving church. And this is why we need to be aware of needs in our community. Right, If you drive down Route 23, you'll see a number of churches. But here I had met someone who those churches had missed. Right, There are still people in our communities, in our towns, who aren't attending church. Those people are out there. And so I share this story not to boast in myself, but to say that you can do these things as well. You can put yourself in situations like this so you can listen to the needs of others and act upon them. And I have a feeling that things like this are what the Thessalonian church was doing to love others well. We, as a church, do not exist solely for ourselves. We exist for the good of those around us and to be a light for the gospel where we are. And so this is the reminder that we see from Paul here. And my question this morning is how can we, as a California church, be witnesses in Morgantown, in Pennsylvania, and to the ends of the earth? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And Paul closes in verse 10 with an important reminder. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Just as we talked about last week, the follower of Jesus should never stop growing in their walk with God. And similarly, Paul says here in today's passage that the follower of Jesus should never stop growing in their ability and desire to love other people. If we ever reach a point in our lives where we say to ourselves, I don't need to love anymore or I'm really good at loving other people, we're probably in dangerous territory. We must always be open to how we can love others more. So we've covered loving well this morning. Let's move to our next point, live well, in verses 11 through 12. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul tacks on what seems like some additional instructions in these last two verses, but uh, I think these commands are are pretty profound, uh, and so we we have to pay attention to them. We see three separate commands here: aspire to live quietly, mind, Your own affairs, and the third, work with your hands. They're simple, possibly easy to overlook, but if we want to live well as followers of Jesus, we have to take these to heart. These commands are what I like to call, uh, or what others might call, acts of resistance. By doing these things, followers of Jesus are resisting the things that our society are pulling us towards. Our culture is always trying to pull us away from God and towards itself. And By doing these things, we are allowing ourselves to be pulled towards God instead. Let's look at that first command, aspire to live quietly. What kind of life does our culture tell us that we should live? A loud one. And by loud, I don't mean that, you know, we're yelling all the time, but a life that is filled with noise, busyness, distractions, things. And who are the people that are deemed successful in our society? Right? The ones who are always doing something, right? Always on the go, always keeping up with the latest trends, always buying the latest toys. The latest um things that people are saying about the American dream is that it, the American dream is changing. It's less about the house and the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and now it's more about a, a life of travel, a life of excitement. For people like me in in their mid 20s, right? They they haven't settled down yet because they're still chasing something. Now, I'm not saying that the American dream was a biblical ideal, uh, but more so that our society is always trying to tell us what the good life should be. But here is what Paul says the good life is. A quiet life. Or to put it another way, you could say a simple life. The city of Thessalonica was a bustling metropolis. Right, There was always lots to do, lots to see, but Paul wanted the Thessalonians to live differently from those in their society, to live quietly. When we become a follower of Jesus, our priorities change, they shift. We don't want the approval of the world, we don't need the approval of the world, because we know that we have the approval of We don't need to live an exciting life that other people see and admire by the world's standards because following Jesus is exciting in a different way. We go from being restless to being restful. And so here are two practices that are helpful for us when it comes to living a quiet life. The first is Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Taking a day out of the week to rest. It doesn't necessarily mean doing nothing. It means doing the things that we enjoy, the things that rejuvenate us. It's a day where we put aside the, the hustle and the hurry of life, and we live quietly. When we Sabbath, we are saying to God, You're enough for me. I don't need to work so hard to achieve the things that I want to achieve, but God, I know that you have given me enough and that I am enough. And the second practice that I would recommend is simplicity. This is the act of not surrounding ourselves with things. And this is a tough one. It's in direct opposition to the materialism of our culture. And I'm not An advocate for minimalism this morning by any means. Uh, But when we simplify, we're saying to God, God, you've given me everything that I need. And so the first command, aspire to live quietly. The second command, mind your own affairs. It's another way of saying, mind your own business. The command that we heard as kids, but we need a reminder sometimes as adults too. We're influenced by our culture in this way. If we look at newspaper articles, magazines, the internet, those are all places where we can find windows into the lives of other people. and we we eat that stuff up, right? Especially when it comes to celebrities. But what do I gain as a follower of Jesus from reading the latest scoop about what's going on in the royal family or the life of the Kardashians or something like that, right? And it's, it's relatively harmless when it's, you know, looking into the life of someone that I don't know. But it's when we get involved or too involved in the lives of people that we do know that we get into trouble. Nothing destroys the unity of a church like gossip. Does. And gossip is communication without consequence. Sharing information with someone that isn't necessary, speaking poorly about someone else behind their back. Yes, there are times when it is loving to share something when asking for prayer or in the case of an emergency. But more often than not, our concern is more of a means of demeaning others and building ourselves up. And so we, we must be careful. And so Paul's command is to mind your own affairs, to focus more on your own life, how you could be doing better. We are not to be like our society, which loves its gossip. And finally, Paul says his last command, work with your hands. It's an interesting command, and it likely comes from the Greeks who viewed manual labor as a lower form of work. They saw manual labor as inferior, right? The philosophers, those were the important people doing the important work. But uh, those who, who served the society, those people were less important. And so Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that before God, all work is valuable. Followers of Jesus should be the hardest working members of society. No matter what they do, because they're working for God, and not for themselves. And so I don't think Paul is necessarily voicing his preference for blue-collar work over white-collar work, but he's instead encouraging the Thessalonians to be productive members of society. They were not to be lazy, because laziness would give them a bad reputation, and work gives us something to do, keeps us out of trouble, but it also gives us connections relationships with people that we wouldn't meet otherwise. And so Paul commands that those who are able work with your hands. And just to sum up the three commands on how to live well, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs and work with your hands. And Paul gives the reason for these commands in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And be dependent on no one. People are watching the way that you live your life. And how we live is a great way to share the gospel with other people. When we resist the pull of our society and we live the way that God intended for us to live, people will take notice. Hey, there's, there's something different about you. Why why do you live the way that you do? Why do you live such a quiet, simple life? Everyone else that you know is out chasing all these things, but what's different about you and the way that you live? Why don't you talk badly about other people? Everyone around you at work seems to love the rumor mill, but you never take part. Why, Why is that? Why do you work so hard? Everyone else around you seems to be slacking off, especially on a Monday or a Friday, but you're always diligently working. Why? What's going on? And to those questions we can answer, because my life has a greater purpose. And that's when you can share with them about what Jesus has done for you. You see, we as followers of Jesus were made to make a difference in our world. And we make a difference by living differently. But Paul also mentioned as he closes verse 12, to be dependent on no one. The reason the follower of Jesus should be dependent on no one is not so that they can do whatever they want, is so that they can do what God wants. The goal is not to be tied down by anything. So when God says to us, go, we are without excuse. We can't say, oh, well, God, I, I can't do that because of fill in the blank. This is like when Jesus said to the rich young ruler to go and sell everything that he had. Well, Jesus, I can't do that. The rich young ruler was dependent on his money. Or when the man said to Jesus, I must go bury my father. That man was dependent on his family's reputation. And so there are many things that can hold us back from truly following Jesus. But the goal is to set ourselves free from those things so that we can be ready to go Where God calls us to go. As I was studying uh, this this second section for this morning, all I could think of was the Garden of Eden, right? It's a place where Adam and Eve loved well, and a place where they lived well, right? They they lived quietly because well, there probably wasn't much to do in the garden besides. Walking with God. They kept to their own affairs and they got into trouble when they started listening to the serpent and they worked with their hands, right? They tended to the garden. And so to follow these commands, to uh, live and love in the way that Paul describes for us here, is to go back to almost restore an image of what it meant to live in the garden with God. It's an act of resistance for us as followers of Jesus. And the world will take notice as we seek to love and live well. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, this this passage is um, quite, quite specific. Um, very practical but also challenging for us and God we know that uh, loving well and living well are those are tough things and we always have an idea of how we in in our lives could seek to love well or to live well but God may we submit to how you have defined these things for us may we be a light to other people in how we love and how we live may the world take notice And may we use that as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.